Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. What's important when you're going through the plateau is, one, take a step back and realize, are you really at a plateau or are you looking at it too granularly? Before we get into today's episode, I want to mention today's best ever partner and give you a free gift. And that partner is Fun That Flip. And they're going to be giving you a free deal analysis spreadsheet. You know who Fun That Flip is, don't you? Because you're a loyal best ever listener. They've been a sponsor on the show. Matt Rodak, the founder of Fun That Flip, has been on the podcast multiple times given us his insight on the online lending process. Fund That Flip provides fast, reliable funding for your house flip projects. They're an online platform, makes the application process entirely easy, and they've got a whole bunch of experts on their team who can help you get funding in 24 hours and close within as few as seven days. And all of you best ever listeners, you're getting a free spreadsheet to help you analyze your projects. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. That's fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. And you'll get a free deal analysis tool. It'll help you provide a scope of work for your projects, create the scope of work, analyze the profitability of the project, or if it's not profitable, you need to know that too, and make a determination on the max purchase price super important. You can print out all the detailed reports and that will help you get your deals funded faster. Go to fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever. Get that free analysis tool, fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. We don't get into any fluff. We only talk about the best advice that moves your real estate investing business forward. And today is Friday because of that, where we've got a special segment for you called Follow Along Friday, where it's not an interview format, but rather it is myself and the co-host on Fridays, Theo Hicks, who's also the co-author with me on the best real estate investing advice ever book, volume one and volume two, talking about what we got going on in our real estate endeavors. And today we're going to be talking about past episodes from the past week and a half to two weeks where we're just going to talk about some thoughts that we have from certain conversations that really stood out to us. How you doing, Theo? I'm doing good, Joe. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. Yep. Nice to have you back, my friend. Well, why don't you kick things off? So best ever listeners, a little bit of context. What Theo and I did is we met before we started recording a couple days ago and we're like, how is the best way to structure our conversation on Follow Along Friday? 
And what we decided is each of us would independently go back over the last week to two weeks worth of episodes and pick some conversations. It might be a quote that a best ever guest said. It might be a topic or an overall theme. And just write down what resonated with us or what we have questions on or maybe something we don't agree with necessarily that they said. And so each of us independently went back and he has a couple episode and topics that he wants to lead the conversation with and we'll talk about. And then I have a couple as well. And ultimately we'll be thinking and talking through some of the things that resonate or didn't necessarily jive with us. So Theo, you want to kick it off? Yeah, let's start with the one that we both had on our list, which comes from episode 818 with Tom Ferry. And I guess it's one of, a quote that he said, which is that anything is a good investment 20 years down the line. And so I guess to, to kick it off, what are your thoughts on that? And you just paraphrased it because I don't think that's his exact quote. But yeah, I basic, it. Yeah. <laughs> basically, it's in 20 years, anything that you buy in real estate is going to be a good purchase. And I'm paraphrasing it as well. And that is something that definitely resonated with me. Anytime we have a generalization like anything's a good purchase, mm-hmm. then obviously it, it doesn't hold true. But we need those types of line in the sand statements so that people pay attention. And I think the idea and the sentiment behind buying a property and holding it in 20 years, eventually it's going to be a good purchase is true as long as you're not buying in an area that is going downhill. I mean, that's really the only way that you'll lose or if you're not properly capitalized because you might buy a property that in 20 years is going to be worth five times as much or even twice as much. But if you don't have the funds to keep it maintained and operating at an optimal level, then that quote goes out the window because you're going to have a property that is worth a fifth of what you bought it for because it's in shambles. But assuming that you've got proper capital and assuming that you have bought in an area that is not going downhill, it could be being flat and being flat, meaning the area can just remain stagnant. And that's fine because in 20 years, assuming you use financing in 20 years, you're going to have a lot of the loan paid off. So you'll end up making cash flow on it. So I agree with the general statement, knowing that there's going to be a couple exceptions. And one reason why that resonated with me and really caught my attention is because my business model with multifamily syndication is you buy a property that has an opportunity to add value, you add the value, and then you capitalize on it through a refinance and then a sale. And when he mentioned this 20-year thing, I was like, well, shoot, I'm not really setting my business up that way. I'm setting it up more like a fix and flipper where just fixing and flipping on a larger scale. So what I need to make sure that I'm doing personally is using the proceeds from these essentially fix and flip. It's over a five to seven year lifespan of apartment communities. That's basically what it is. I'm using the proceeds to buy for a long term. And I have three single family homes in Dallas, Fort Worth. And they'll be, barring something unforeseen, I'll continue to have them for the, forever. 
And that's more of what he's referring to because in 20 years from now, I think all three of them, at least two of them, will be paid off. And they'll be great investments. And right now, those three single-family homes, I basically break even because last May a tenant moved out in one of the homes and cost like $6,000 to get it move in ready, which wipes out my profits for a year and a half. And I'm sure I'll be profitable about 250 bucks a month now. And then in two years when a tenant moves out, I'll lose another 6,000. So really they are breaking even until the mortgage is paid off. So I really like that philosophy. I think it refocuses us on what you and I talked about on last week's follow along Friday which is we should pay attention to what we can accomplish and what we want to do over a decade, not a day, month, six months, or even year or five years, but rather think about it in terms of decades. Because when we do that, we are setting ourselves up for the long haul. I do think we should have goals every six to 12 months. I think it's harder to come up with goals for say five years out. I don't have any five-year goals. I have a goal that I created whenever I was, I think like 31 years old. I'm 34 now. And that was to control a billion dollars of real estate before my 40th birthday. So that was about a decade goal at a time. And then I have short goals like monthly and yearly goals. But I think after that, you start limiting yourself if you have a five-year goal because you don't really know where your six and 12 month goals are going to take you. And I think going back to our conversation last week where we talked about focusing on decades, when we focus on decades, then it really allows us to solidify in our mind that we are in this for the long run Mm -hmm. and we're able to adjust accordingly and make sure that we're planning for the long, long run, which is what Tom was talking about. Everything you said, I totally agree with. And I was going to say, I had two additional thoughts on what you're talking about. But one of them was the thinking in terms of decades instead of years, which is this philosophy that Tom was talking about, totally aligned with that. But kind of what you're saying at the end there is less about telling yourself 20 years from now, this is exactly how things are going to be because it's impossible to do that. It kind of reminds me of that Tony Robbins said this analogy, which is about if you have two boats standing next to each other and one turns like one degree to the right, miles and miles later, they're going to be so far away. You don't really know. Maybe we'll make other turns. You essentially make one turn now, 20 years from now, you're going to be so far away from where you thought that you previously mm. were. It's impossible to even predict. And so instead of specifically saying, this is exactly how things are going to be, it's more of like having an overarching vision is the term. And like, here's my 20 year vision. And it's going to be a lot wider and not very narrow and specific because again, you don't really necessarily No, and if you try to shove yourself into some specific goal, you might actually lose opportunities that could push you along further. That was one thing I wanted to say. But the second thing that kind of I started thinking about when you were talking was maybe anything could be a good investment in 20 years. It can help you actually make a decision and not be super indecisive. And it reminds me of that five keys to thriving document you actually sent me this morning. And I was reading through it. And on step number three, which is be decisive. (laughs) It had a story of one of the greatest generals and decision makers of all time and how they're in the Pentagon. They had gone five years without making a decision on a research project. And it was really between two options. 
And he just went in there and just in an hour is like, all right, we're going to do option A. And some young intern went up to him and was like, hey, like, how did you make that decision without any of the knowledge or any of the research? You've been going for five years and don't made the decision. And essentially said the right thing to do was to make a choice. It wasn't like one is good and one is bad. It's just at this moment, I had to make a choice. Now I'm going to put all of our resources into this one option and make it the right choice. And if it turns out that it actually is incorrect, then we'll quickly discover that and then change direction and go to option B. But if he never made a decision in the first place, then he would have been in indecisive limbo land forever. And I'm assuming that might be what that philosophy is. If you tell yourself, okay, any investment, so to speak, is going to be good in 20 years, as long as I, number one, make a decision, and number two, actually follow through and implement the business plan correctly. Because obviously, if you don't do any of that, then no matter what investment you get, even if it's the best deal in the world, if you don't implement the business plan correctly, and kind of like this general, put all of your resources into it, it's going to be bad regardless. It's so true. I completely agree. It's something where, if, as you said, it forces us to make a decision. And ultimately, I believe it's better to make a decision and then figure out how to fix that than just stand on the sideline and not play the game. Would you rather be in the game and make some mistakes and then improve? Or would you rather just be sitting on the bench watching others play the game? Right? Exactly. Yeah. Again, that's kind of a general statement. There are exceptions where perhaps I'd rather sit on the sideline instead of make a major catastrophic mistake while I'm playing in the game, certainly. But in general, I think it's good to be playing the game. All right. And then the other one that I wrote down, we both had Tom Ferry, episode 818. By the way, best ever listeners, go check that one out. The other one is with Adam Sedinger. And this is just a really quick hitting thing. We don't have to talk a whole lot about it. It's just when he said it, I immediately thought I need to do this. And I think I said it in the interview. Mm -hmm. Adam Sedinger, he's inspected over 7,000 homes, 7,000 homes. I was blown away when he told me that during the interview. And he said one recommendation is to call the city about the home that you're buying and ask them if there have been any permits pulled for work on that house. Just to make sure that if there has been work done that it is properly permitted because that could cause issues in the future when you buy the house and you don't have things properly permitted if they come by that could retroactively cost you a bunch of moolah. I am in the process of buying a house for my primary residence with my fiance, and that is not something that I did during the due diligence period, but now that the due diligence period has ended but we haven't closed yet, I'm still going to call and just see if there's anything that is coming up just to go in with eyes wide open. I can't do much about it at this point, but it's just something that I'm going to do. And I'm glad that he mentioned that. That was a good technique. And then in turn, you can kind of use that as a negotiation or leverage if the permits don't match what the actual property looks like. If something was done that wasn't a permit wasn't pulled for then apparently it's very, very costly or time-consuming for the owner to do that. So I actually wrote a blog post on this. It's called What You Are Missing During a Home Inspection and Why You Must Pay Attention. Essentially telling you exactly what you explained and then how you can actually use that as a leverage technique to potentially get the property for less or 
whatever it is you want to negotiate. And how about we put this in the show notes link to the blog post? Mm. Yeah, let's do that. Cool. All right, Theo, what are the insights or talking points from the episodes that you came up with? So here's another interesting one and I wanted to get your take on and it's from episode 817 with Jeremy Roll, who is a passive investor and he was essentially stressing the importance of diversifying and he diversifies across, it seemed like he's handed everything, mobile homes, retail, multifamily, single family homes. And I was going to ask you, do you think that this diversification is a strategy? Just like fixing and flipping is a strategy and buying and holding is a strategy. You know, is being diversified across multiple niches a strategy? Or is it a actual requirement? And no matter what strategy you're doing within that strategy, you have to be diversified. Or do you think it's somewhere kind of in between like a gray area? I haven't come up with an answer in my head about that. My initial gut reaction is it's a requirement. We must be diversified because that mitigates our risk. But my contrarian thought process is that, well, if you're very good at something, then focus on that one thing and do it. Just focus. Now that I'm talking through it, I think we all are very good at one thing. Then we should do that one thing, make money from that one thing, and invest in a diversified portfolio. The more I think about it, I think it's a requirement because there's all sorts of stuff that comes up across every industry, and it's nice to have one thing go down but another go up and perhaps others stay flat. What was interesting for me, obviously he's diversified across different asset types, but you can also do diversification of geography. And so you could invest in the same type of real estate, but do it across multiple geographies. And something else that was very interesting that I never even thought of before was diversification of asset management. And what he meant was, instead of just having one property manager for everything, have multiple property managers so that if one, I, I wish I could remember specifically what well, he said, he, but it was very interesting. He, he actually wasn't referring to property managers. He was referring to operators. So he was referring to the Joe Fairlesses of the world mm. where he invests passively. So he was saying, I don't want to put all my money in one Joe Fairless. I'd rather have a Joe Fairless and someone else who does multifamily syndication and someone else who does multifamily syndication. That way, if there's a 1% chance of fraud or just gross neglect yeah. takes place, you don't have all your money with one operator. And how I approach diversification in my multifamily business is geography, one, because you can have the overarching business model of you buy something that's stabilized but needs has opportunity to have value added you can do that in any market you'll have to tweak the business plan a little bit based on geography but you can do that in any market because people do do that in any market so we've got places in Houston and in Dallas Fort Worth Chad Carson was an interview guest, and the title of the episode was Stay Local and Dominate. He went to Clemson. I think he was a linebacker for the Clemson Tigers. 
when he was in college and he is focused on just staying in like a small, small, small neighborhood or zip code and just dominating that area and then just taking another zip code and dominating that area. And I highly recommend going to listen to that episode. Just search Chad Carson, Joe Fairless, stay local and dominate and the episode will come up. That's the opposite of what I just said, right? Like he's staying local and he's dominating. He's not diversifying. And I think the only way you could take the opposite approach of diversification within geography is if you are local and you know the market through and through and you don't have the system set up to go into another market very easily because the opportunity cost for you spending time to set up all those systems might be too great because you're going to be missing out on deals locally that you could be making money on then, even if and when the economy goes down in your local market, you still might come out ahead based on what you made on the front end of it by taking all the time to set up and be average in another market. Because what I found is the individuals who stay local and dominate, they tend to be very good at local investing, but they haven't honed their mentality of how do I scale this and take what I know and my expertise and put it in other markets. Because usually they're very hands-on and they have the right teams in place locally and that's very tough to scale from what I found with those individuals. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess something else too that what you were saying kind of made me think about too is that this diversification it seems as if it's more of a, I wouldn't say a longer term play, but like someone that's brand new in real estate investing that only has a couple of properties, I feel like it might be a lot more difficult to diversify. And I wonder how, I'm not sure if Jeremy talked about that or not in the episode, because obviously if I've got one property and then I buy a second one, am I going to want to continue doing what I'm doing in order to build up enough skill set and knowledge in that one area before kind of, as you said, going out and expanding and scaling somewhere else? Or do I start diversifying right away. It seems like maybe potentially the diversification might come later down the road after you've built up a decent sized portfolio. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And this was coming from Jeremy's perspective because I think that's important to note again, because he is strictly a passive investor. Mm -hmm. He's not building his own company in a market. He is identifying opportunities to passively invest in and with him, I think it's really simple. I'm pretty sure I asked him that question, like, when do you know it's time to diversify with someone or somewhere else? And he said, no one thing, either geography or operator or asset class makes up more than 10%. Yeah. I think that's what he said. That's what he said, yeah. So what we're doing right now, you and I, we are extrapolating that out and talking about as an operator how do we approach it? So we're making it more relevant to investors and ourselves and how we know when to move from one market to the next. I don't have a direct answer. I, I'm not sure how we know when it's time to move from one market to the next as investors. I can tell you my company invested in Houston we bought a 250 unit in August of 2015, and we bought our next property, a 155 unit, in March or April of 2016. 
And then we went north to Dallas, Fort Worth. And the reason why is because it was just getting a little muddy in Houston. It was getting harder to bring in investors, but more importantly, it was harder to find the right opportunities because the owners of the multifamily properties weren't selling as much as a discount as I believe they should have, even though I wholeheartedly believe in the Houston market as a whole. So we just went north to diversify our portfolio because we just didn't see the right opportunities there based on what the market was projecting and currently doing. And that's when we decided to diversify, but we're still doing the same business plan. And we also diversified across what you were mentioning earlier, property managers. So this is where we did diversify. We have a management company that manages a portion of our portfolio and we have another management company that manages the other portion of our portfolio and where each of them are stronger and what type of fees were being charged and how the overall communication process goes. And that's really helpful. And if, God forbid, relationship turns sour with one of them, which I don't expect it will, anything's possible though, at least we have another operator that we can quickly go to who has experience and is able to pick things up. Yeah. So it sounds like in your case is potentially a little bit more, I guess, organic. And when you need to actually diversify based off of wherever you're currently at, if something changes there or you're no longer finding opportunities there, then you're kind of going to automatically organically start searching elsewhere. Yep. Exactly. What else we got? The only other ones, out of all the blog posts from this week, the one comment we got was in regards to last week's Follow Along Friday, episode 822, about the four mindsets of, of the mastery process. And someone commented about how they struggle and they go crazy during these periods of no growth or, or plateau periods. And so I guess for you, since you've been investing in real estate for a couple of years now, when you've gone through those plateau periods... What have you done to not go quote unquote crazy, <laughs> especially maybe during your first one, you're growing a lot at first. And then maybe you had that first time where it was slightly or completely stagnated and you weren't seeing as many results as you were during that initial burst. Kind of, how did you reconcile that specifically on the mental side? On the mental side, I think the podcast is a good example because I track the monthly downloads and I divide that by number of days and that tells me how many daily downloads there are. And I have an Excel spreadsheet that shows the podcast growth since we've been doing this for over two years now, every single day for over two years now. And if you look at something on a daily basis, you're going to get highs and lows that might not be very relevant on a monthly basis when you have a greater perspective. Therefore, I think it's important to identify the right things you need to be tracking daily and the things that aren't as good of a use for you to track daily and they need to be more monthly. For example, it would not make any sense whatsoever if I informed the investors in my deals what was going on that day yeah. at the property. I mean, if I sent them a daily email about what happened at the property, our resident in building six, apartment one, came in and wanted to tell us they were buying a dog. So we're now going to be charging them pet rent. And resident in building seven one had 
a toilet that backed up. We called Garcia and Garcia came out and fixed it. That would be crazy. So what's important when you're going through the plateau is one, take a step back and realize, are you really at a plateau or are you looking at it too granularly? That's number one. Number two is, it's pretty simple. Just identify the things that have gotten you out of that plateau in the first place. If you are now in another plateau, if this is the first plateau, then do research, primary and secondary research, primary where you do your own research and conduct your own studies, do interviews, secondary, you just read research that others have conducted and you identify how others have gotten out of it. I mean, it's not hard. There's no secret sauce to it. It's just you see and read and listen to others who have been there and you interview them and implement their insight or advice and then eventually something will shake from the tree and you'll be able to be rewarded and get out of that plateau. I'm a firm believer of always having a business consultant. I've had one for, I don't know, however long I've been doing entrepreneur stuff, so three and a half years. I've also had some specific real estate consultants. I don't have multifamily consultant anymore because I am surrounded by a bunch of people who are incredibly successful in that space and I can ask them questions if I have them. But I do have a business slash life coach that we've talked about and definitely recommend having someone who can help you through those plateau moments because a lot of the times we are looking at it too granularly. We can't see the forest from the trees at that point in time and we've got to have a coach. Yeah, that at first part, more the more analytical looking at it too granularly is huge, especially if you start off doing that or I guess if you ever get to that point because you, you can be stuck there and start obsessing over that and, and thinking that nothing's really happening when it actually is. So I think that was key to actually make sure that you actually are in a plateau and you're not just making it up as a story in your head. And then that second part about having some, that's interesting to say too, because so much you can talk to, but even kind of having like a mentor that you can read or listen to and hear them talk about the fact that, hey, this is advice to me. Hey, Theo, you're not the first person to ever live everyone's gone through plateaus, everyone's gone through this, and here's how the people that have gone successfully past these plateaus, here's how they've done it, or here's how they've managed it. So yeah, you'd have someone like for us, Coach Trevor, to talk to him, and he can kind of you know, give you that kick in the butt, or there's also you can kind of go out and see other people on YouTube or your podcast or in, the, in, in books and kind of read their life stories and see other plateaus and how their plateau is probably a lot worse than the one that I have or you have or whatever too. So both of those definitely help. Absolutely. I agree. Well, this was interesting. I like talking about interview guests and certain things that they have mentioned that really resonate with us or something that we should find something that we take offense to one of these times and write that in there or disagree with because I'm sure that would be a lot of fun. Well, best ever listeners, we're going to wrap things up I sincerely am grateful for you spending your time with us today. Hopefully, we've given you some things to think about, some actionable advice for your business. And if you have a desire to continue with the real estate investing education, then I'd love to meet you in person at the conference in Denver, the Best Ever Conference. I've talked about it a little bit. 
we're going to be doing the first ever best ever conference Denver, Colorado, February 24th, 25th. It's a personalized conference to what you're looking to get out of it. So once you sign up, you'll get a call from Ben, who is putting the conference on with me, and he's going to make sure that we know exactly what you're looking for, and we're going to deliver on that with the speaker topics as well as the overall structure of the conference. So you can go to besteverconference.com and watch some videos on the speakers and go check it out. Theo, great hanging out with you again. Great talking shop. And oh, by the way, best ever listeners, we're going to be doing Facebook Live follow along Fridays starting in January sometime. So you'll be able to hear this episode before it actually airs. You'll be able to hear it and see it the day we record it versus the day it actually airs on the podcast. So be on the lookout for that and we'll let you know when we're going to do it. Theo, where's the best place the best ever listeners can reach you? You guys can check out my website, theohicks.org. It's where I post my weekly podcast, the Unplugged podcast, where essentially I do the same thing that Joe does for real estate, but for just life in general. And it's more along the lines of personal growth and personal development and how to navigate this Very interesting, fascinating human experience. Awesome. All right, best ever listeners, have a wonderful rest of the day and we'll talk to you tomorrow. A good mentor can hold the keys to your real estate investing success. I've seen that firsthand with my own real estate career. Whether you're just getting started in investing or have experience, a mentor is a must. Learn the secrets of real estate investing with Peter Vexelman at coachingbypeter.com. That's C-O-A-C-H. I-N-G-B-Y-P-E-T-E-R dot com.